Welcome to Red Tree Church. Welcome to our first Sunday morning gathering of 2020. I'm not uh, going to make a joke about how it's been so long. I haven't seen you guys in a decade, but you know, you know the joke is there. It could have been taken, and I'm not going for it. Um, so next week, we're jumping back into our study of Colossians. I'm sorry I did that to you guys. We're jumping back into our study of Colossians. Uh, but before we do that, we've been on break for, for the whole month of December. We went through Advent, did a couple standalone sermons. We're going to do one more time, just kind of on its own. And I thought kind of jumping into the new year, it would be good for us to take a few minutes scripturally and reflect on uh, what God is calling our church to in the new year. And then just think about... Um, the, the, the beautiful and kind of unique gift he's given us in, in, in Red Tree Church, and, and maybe what, um, like, like what Craig said earlier, what, what our next steps in obedience are to Jesus going into the new year. So um, to that end, uh, today we're going to be looking at a small passage in John 13. If you guys want to pre-turn there, there's house Bibles in the end of each row. It's going to take us a few minutes to get there. Uh, but that is going to be our main text today is John 13. Uh, I love uh, this passage. You've heard me reference it before because I think it perfectly encapsulates um, what we believe God has called us to um, at Red Tree Church. You guys are probably really sick of like just hearing about um, the vision mission of our church at this point. And I'm like halfway sorry for that, but, but not really. Because the reality is, I actually believe uh, really firmly that, that, that God has something unique and awesome for us as a church body. And it's something that I want us to actually be unified on. And so um, even if you're tired of it, it's a drum we're going to keep beating till we're all tired of it so that we can be unified in this cool thing that is our church body. So Craig said some of this at the beginning. We hear a lot of this language a lot, but, but I would encourage you guys, like, be with me in this for a few minutes. Like, let's, let's actually experience and reflect on some of these words, some of these phrases for a few minutes, and I think God will have something really cool for us. So we say Red Tree Church exists to glorify God by seeing lives transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or we shorten that to say Red Tree exists to glorify God by making disciples, right? That's, that's the mission statement of our church. That's the thing at the top of our bylaws as a nonprofit organization. But the reality is that mission statement is not a unique thing. That comes from the teaching of Jesus himself in Matthew 28. If you read the Great Commission before Jesus ascended into heaven, the mission that he gave to his church through his apostles was that they would go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, making them disciples, teaching them to obey everything Jesus had commanded. This is the mission of the church given to us by our founder and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Go everywhere, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Glorify God, make disciples. That is the essence of the Christian church. Which, by the way, it's one of the unique things about Christian theology. We're going to talk about this on and off this year a lot, but we live in such a Christianized culture, and what I, what I mean by that is that Western culture, North American, European culture, has so much Christian theology and Christian politics intermixed into our cultural understanding, our worldview, and our history, that a lot of times it's really hard for us to see some of the unique aspects of the Christian worldview. And the reason is because 
does, even though the Western society is secularized, it has a ton of Christian ideals built into its roots and its core philosophies. They've just been stripped of Jesus and made into rules and philosophies and cultural ideals. And it's easy for us to just assume those are universal ideals, but they're not. They're unique things given to the world by Christ through his church. And it's important for us to reflect on that. This missionary mindset is one of those things. Christianity is the only religious system that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And that's something to think about. The core mission of the Christian church is to go and invite others in and glorify God in that mission. It's a unique thing that sets us apart as Christians. It does not set us apart as Red Tree. Red Tree is a Christian church, and the way we articulate that mission is just the way we've chosen to say the thing that every single Christian church throughout the world and throughout history is attempting to do. You cross all denominational, cultural, historical lines, Christian churches exist to glorify God and make disciples, period. Regardless of how much you may or may not agree with some of their tertiary doctrines, you work your way through church history and around the world. This is what Christians do. Glorify God and make disciples. Now, we think, and we've kind of articulated, that that there is a, a way that our little body, our little collection, our little church is best equipped to do that. As for the last 10 years, as the leaders at Red Tree have sat back and thought and prayed and engaged the culture and the time that we're in, and we've said, man, what is the best way for us, Little Red Tree Church, to engage this huge mission that the whole church has and has been given by Jesus? What's the way to do that? And consistently, we've come back to uh, this, this little piece that is our vision as a church, right? The thing that, that we say, this is what Red Tree is about. This is how we do that thing that the whole church has been called to do for the last 2,000 years. And again, this is something you hear us say all the time, uh, but it's important. We want this hammered into our skulls uh, because this is the thing that we want to see define the life of our church. This is the thing we want to see at the core of our practice and our experience together as a church. And so you hear us, you might hear this called, right, like we, we used to say these are our gospel rhythms or this is our discipleship process or this is our vision as a church, but whatever language you're using, it comes back to this is what we want to see define the spiritual experience at Red Tree, and that's Jesus, family, and mission. Jesus, family, and mission. This is the essence of life at Red Tree. If you spend any amount of time with us, I'm hoping, I'm praying that this is what you're going to experience. And so let me kind of walk us through that little bit really quick. Um, I I won't belabor it a lot, but I want to walk through kind of some of what we mean by those three words, and then we're going to jump into John 13, and I think think we'll see something really cool there for us. So we'll start with this word, Jesus. Guys, it is all about Jesus. That's that's ultimately what what we start there. That's ultimately what, what I'm saying here. As a church, it's about Jesus. We're here for him, for intimacy with him, because of his sufficiency, because of what he did, because of his love for us, because of his glory, that is why we're gathered. If you were to go out and spend some time getting lunch or meals or coffee with the different people in this room, you would find out there is only one thing that actually unifies us. 
This is a diverse and differing room, right? We've got people with different stories and different backgrounds and different socioeconomic statuses and different cultures and different everythings, but we are bound together by Jesus, by his person, by his work, by his sufficiency. And so this is the piece. Red Tree Church, if you are at a red tree thing and the sufficiency and excellency of the finished and accomplished person and work of Jesus Christ is not being proclaimed, we're not doing what we're supposed to do, period. It is all about Christ. It is about his sufficiency. It is about the completeness of his work, the completeness of his person. There is nothing in this world, no hurt, no sin, no destruction, no injustice, no joy, no success, no anything that is sufficient to engage the needs of the human heart as Jesus Christ, period. And we believe that that is worth changing your entire life over. I want you, I want you to come, like, like, actually sit in that with me for a moment. This is the core declaration of the Christian church, but of our church. Jesus Christ changes everything. This, this man, who was a rabbi in another country on the other side of the planet thousands of years ago, is the hinge point of reality. And he's worth changing your life over. The shorthand I use is I say, man, we want to wrap our lives around Jesus. We want to wrap our lives around him. And the reason is this. He is sufficient. He's sufficient. Your hurt, your story, your pain, your family, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, everything about you is answerable in him period, period. He is worth conforming and wrapping your life around because it is what you were built for. He is the lover of your soul. He is the God who was made flesh, who stepped into the suffering with us, who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death and was resurrected from the dead by the power of the Spirit and ascended into heaven and will return to take his family home with him. He is sufficient for you. So I hope, and I pray, and I mean this, I pray daily that we would wrap our lives around the person and work of Jesus. Because if we don't do that, nothing else we're doing or talking about matters. If, if, if this church, if this family is, is a method by which we can engage social structures or we can have deep friendships or we can find community service projects or we can have a good hobby and relational connections or we can be aware of current trends in theology or any, anything besides the completeness and sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus, then we're missing it. We're missing it. Pastor Jeff used to say, church is a terrible hobby, and it is true. (laughs) There are way more fun things you can do to indulge your time and spend your money. But we're here because we believe Jesus is who he says he is, and it is all about him. He is sufficient. Wrap your life around him. But it doesn't end there. Because we believe that lives wrapped around Jesus will unavoidably find themselves growing in covenant commitment with Jesus' family. 
See, this piece is really important. The gospel is not an individual-to-individual transaction. You, as an autonomous human being, did not have a transactional relationship with Jesus as an autonomous being to gain salvation. That's not how the Bible teaches it. If you can, I mean, there's plenty of passages, but you can jump to just the beginning of Galatians 4, and you can see that the sufficient and complete person and work and life of Jesus was to, or for the purpose, of purchasing for himself a family that those who have been washed in the blood of Christ and included in the kingdom of God have been adopted as sons of God and co-heirs alongside Christ, right? He did not buy citizens. He did not buy subjects. He adopted a family. And that's important for us to know. You cannot, you cannot wrap your life around Jesus. You cannot make Jesus the defining center of your person and your experience without covenanting and committing and connecting your heart and soul to his family. Because to be with Jesus is to be in his family, period. So in Christ, yes, there's the truth that we are individuals, but really in Christ, we are brothers and sisters co-heirs with Christ, recipients of his inheritance. You know, Jesus uses the analogy for his return. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you, right? This, this comes from, from Jewish wedding traditions, where when, when, when engagement would happen, the, 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 the husband-to-be would promise that he would build space for his bride-to-be to live in their family home. And that's literally what would happen during the engagement is that the, the, the groom-to-be would go to his father's house because they lived communally, right? Multiple generations and kind of extended family. And they would build onto the house, build up, build out. They would add rooms and create more space so that the bride and the children to come would be included in the home and the family. This is the promise Jesus made. You know, if you, if, if you grew up like more old school and you had the King James Bible, it said, I go to make many mansions for you. It's many rooms. Jesus is building a family home, a family home, and we're going to have space in it. And every Christian you've ever known that has bugged you and driven you nuts and pushed all your buttons will be in eternity with you and Jesus forever. (laughs) It's part of the deal. And so we have to, we have to reckon with that. What does it mean not just to to allow our lives to be defined by the person and work of Jesus, not just to let his sufficiency speak into every decision and every facet of our life, but what does it mean to let our lives grow in deeper commitment, deeper covenant, deeper entanglement with the family of Jesus? What does that mean? Because if we're honest, right, we can say, and we heard that beautiful testimony from the Packards, right? We can talk about how, man, church family is a powerful thing, and it is. You've probably experienced that. When I think about the birth of my kids and what was going on in my life when that happened, I don't know what Kim and I would have done if it wasn't for our church family. Our, our, our blood families are awesome, and they took great care of us, but you guys like, oh my gosh, there is such a difference between church family relationship and just the friends and people I know in this world. There really is. But at the same time, most of us would say, that's true, 
but it still feels different. It still feels different than like my wife or my parents or my kids or my spouse. So how do we, how do we reckon with that? How do we say that, that the blood of Christ has bought a family bound together by the most intimate, powerful thing, the person and work of Jesus? And yet most of the time, if we're honest, and this isn't a true 100% of the time, but most of the time, that doesn't actually feel as intimate as our blood family. What do we do with that? My thought would be this, that as we grow in our devotion, our connection to Christ, we will make active, willful choices to deepen our entanglement and our covenant and our connection and our dependence with our church family. It's a, ch- a willful choice we make. You know, we talked about this this last fall. We talked about the ways that we come together as family. And I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you guys, w- when you create space where you get together with brothers and sisters in Christ, and in that space you intentionally declare and contextualize and work through the details of the sufficiency of Jesus. When the gospel is truly proclaimed over coffee tables and in living rooms and at dinner tables and at restaurants with brothers and sisters, and it's done so in a space where there's real, honest, transparent confession that is absent from guilt or shame or judgment, but it's just raw, real, safe confession alongside real gospel proclamation, if those two things happen long enough, your hearts will knit together. They will. You will find real, deep gospel community. Which is why we say that. Gospel plus safety plus time creates gospel community. It does. And when we make choices because of our growing intimacy with Christ to prioritize that kind of relationship, to sacrifice and live a different kind of life in the midst of busy schedules and advancing careers and different kids' activities and all the different stuff of life, we cut through that and say, that stuff's awesome, but I know that I'll be in eternity with these people and the swim team won't exist for eternity. Like, I know that's reality, so I'm gonna make sure that, that part of my family's rhythms is to go into this space and declare this gospel free of judgment and guilt and be honest and real, and I'm gonna keep doing that over and over and over and over because that matters, that creates community. It does. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Because lives wrapped around Jesus, they'll always grow in covenant commitment to each other and to the people of Jesus. But the people of Jesus living in covenant community together will unavoidably find themselves participating in Jesus' mission pure and simple. If you are wrapping your life around Jesus and he is becoming the very ground, the core of your existence, and you are growing in entanglement and connection and dependence and covenant with Jesus's family, you will find yourself participating in Jesus's mission. I said this at our members meeting uh, last December. I was like, this is like the Jesus version of if you give him a house a cookie. 
It's just, it's just what it is. It's what it is. If you find yourself actually doing these things, you will find yourself participating in Jesus' mission. You will. See, Jesus is doing a very active work. <laughs> He's seeking and saving the lost. People sometimes will tell me, they'll say, Pastor, I feel really distant from Jesus. I feel like he's not there. I feel like I'm praying and he, I'm, just, I'm just not. It's, it's like he's in another room. I don't usually say this in the moment because that would really hurt. But, but the truth we have to work toward in that is, man, if you feel like Jesus isn't with you, you need to ask yourself where Jesus is and why you're not there. Because the reality is Jesus is out seeking and saving the lost. Now. Always. You're like, shoot, we shouldn't be here right now. No, he's here to you. <laughs> but, but, but hear what I'm saying. Jesus has a mission. He has a big old stinking wedding feast. I don't know if you guys remember this, this parable that Jesus gave, but the wedding feast of the Lamb when Christ returns will be insane, and there are plenty of empty seats. And he said, go out Go find people to partake in my generosity and my hospitality. Go into the alleys. Go into the ghettos. Go into the bushes. Into the, go everywhere. Find people to fill my feast. This is the mission of Jesus. Seeking, saving the lost. This is what he is doing. And if we are growing in, 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 in our intimacy with him where he is the grounding of our life and we are covenanting and connecting ourselves to his family, then we're going to be doing his work. Why, like, how would it work otherwise, right? And so that always looks like two things. It always, always, always the mission of God will look like gospel invitation and it will look like curse alleviation. And those two things are inseparable. If you study what the scripture says about the mission of God, it's this. Sin broke the world. And the world we live in is cursed and awful and terrible, unjust, evil things happen. But God is not satisfied with the curse having the last word on his good creation. So he entered into the muck and the mire and he suffered the curse alongside his creation. Injustly experienced the effects of a curse he did not bring upon himself. And he died a terrible, unjust death. And by the power of the spirit, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to defeat the power of the curse. And so that means something really intense. It means that souls can be saved. It means that eternal life can be bought for sinners. It means that we have an opportunity to repent of our sins and believe in the sufficiency of Jesus and receive eternal life and intimacy with him. Amen? But it also means that we get invited into building the kingdom here and now, into participating in heaven here and now. Look at the ministry of Jesus. He preached. He called people to belief and repentance. He constantly gave kingdom invitation. And he was constantly combating the effects of the curse. Stuff that exists now that won't exist in heaven, uh, you should break it. It's sin. It's curse stuff. Homelessness will not exist in heaven. 
Poverty will not exist in heaven. Starvation will not exist in heaven. We are invited into destroying the curse here and now, living the kingdom here and now, in anticipation of the coming perfect kingdom. You can't separate those things. Look at the life of the early church. This is, this is how they chose to live. He, he, the problem is the church tends to go to one side or the other on this, right? The, the church tends to say, well, mission is all about just alleviating suffering, or mission is all about just like proclaiming the gospel, like that stuff doesn't matter because this earth is passing away, so why would you waste time and resources worrying about stuff here and now when eternity is at stake? And other people would say, how the heck will people listen to your message about eternity if you're leaving them in their suffering? And we go to one way or the other, but the truth is the Bible teaches both yes and this is mission. Gospel invitation and curse alleviation. They're inseparable. And Tony Campolo famously said, to give a starving child bread and not tell them about the bread of life is to send them to hell with a full stomach. That's not actually love. It's not actually love. But at the same time, James, probably a little weightier, <laughs> said if someone comes to you in your need, in their need, and you say, I'll pray for you, be well, and you don't alleviate their suffering, you got a problem. It's yes and. To participate in the mission, to partner with Jesus, is to go out into the world to do everything we can to combat the curse and the effects of the curse, to show people the actual heaven we're inviting them into. This is what you were built for. You were not built for this injustice and this suffering. You were built for something better, and I know the dude who's bringing about that something better, and he desires for you to have life. Come on. Our missional service to the hurting was always we partnered with our missional proclamation of the gospel invitation. They always go together, always. So we look for any and every opportunity to combat the curse around us. And we look for any and every opportunity to proclaim the sufficiency and excellency of Jesus and the invitation that all might come to his feast. Wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever you play, there is lostness and curse all around you. There is deadness and hopelessness. You know, it's really easy to think, oh, curse alleviation, that means going and serving churches in the streets and giving meals to homeless folk. Yes and amen. If you have not gone to that, you should. There is no good reason for you not to. I promise you, they go every week, twice a week. You can find an hour in 2020 to go feed homeless people. I promise you. Yes, you should start there. But then we're able to go to, to do something like that and check the box and go, yes, I have fought the curse because we look around West County and we see the comfort and the wealth and we go, well, that stuff's not happening here. But beloved, the curse affects more than people's wallets. You are surrounded by people who are dying on the inside, who are hopeless and hurting and addicted and crushed by personal battles with injustice and mental illness and all sorts of things that need the life and freedom of Jesus spoken into them. You are surrounded by the mission of Jesus. Wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever you play, 
there is mission around you to participate in. So lock arms with your family. Wrap your life around this Jesus and go and participate in the mission of God. So, open your Bibles to John 13. We looked at the very beginning of this chapter a few weeks ago during our Advent series. We're going to jump down and start in verse 31. What's going on here is that it's the last night uh, of Jesus' ministry before he's betrayed and handed over to his unjust, terrible, torturous death. And he's just celebrated his last meal with his best friends. And we had that scene at the beginning of the chapter where he washes his disciples' feet. It says, it says he loved them to the end. The deep well of Jesus' love showed itself in humble, humiliating, other-centered service, Right? And after he does this act and they're sharing the meal, Jesus drops this bomb and says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all kind of like, wait, what? And things get a little intense. And the way John tells the story, Satan himself possesses Judas so that he can leave and go betray Jesus. It's really intense. And he goes and he leaves, and John says it really poetically. He says, and it was night. And that's where our text picks up, starting in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while am I with you you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Jesus, give us some clarity to think about this text. Give us some sober eyes to see your heart and your command and your desire for your church. And let us walk out of here this morning not having heard a pitch from a pastor on a church's vision, but having heard from you on your heart for your people. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So Jesus waits until Judas leaves to give this new command. And I think that's important. I'm, I'm going to just rush through a couple things here really quick because I think there's something just really good in this text for us. He waits till Judas leaves because he knows everything is about to go insane. See, his followers at this point are really riding an emotional high. The last few weeks leading up to this moment have felt like justification and completion of Jesus' ministry. He has been fully, publicly revealed as claiming to be the Messiah. And everywhere he's traveled around Israel, everyone is stoked. Marches of people are coming around Jesus. It seems like the time is now. And what they're expecting is for their Messiah to raise up a rebellion and cast off the Romans and give Israel its freedom and its identity as a nation again. And they enter into Jerusalem, and it seems like it's about to happen. The people begin praising Jesus as a, as a triumphant king coming home from war. 
And in the midst of this, they go and they celebrate the Passover meal. These guys are riding high. They're stoked. Things could not be better. And things are about to go terribly wrong. And Jesus knows that. He knows how much the next six, eight hours are going to destroy these guys' world. And they're his closest friends. He loves them and he cares for them. So when Judas leaves, and it's happening, and the events are in motion, Jesus, and John is the only gospel that records this, sets aside his last few hours with his disciples to really, really try and shepherd and minister to them and prepare their hearts for the pain they're about to experience. And so he gives this opening piece where he's, he says glory like five times, and we kind of read that and we're like, what the heck is he saying in, in that first verse there? Essentially what Jesus is saying is, guys, it's happening. There's no going back. My glory is about to happen, and it's about to happen fast. And what we don't realize, or what we realize, but his audience didn't realize, is that Jesus' glory is not an amazing military triumph. It's an unjust, brutal, torturous death. Jesus' crucifixion and death and resurrection are his glory, and God's about to give it to him. And it's coming. And so he says, listen, it's here. The time is coming, and he calls them little children. This is a really common term a rabbi would use for his students. It's him saying, shh, 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 listen to me. Listen to me. I need you to hear this. You heard me tell everyone else this, but I'm telling you now, I'm about to leave, and you can't come with me. Don't, don't question it. Just, just hear me. It's about to happen. You can't come with me. So I'm leaving you with a new commandment. I'm leaving you with a new commandment. And he gives this commandment, love each other as I have loved you. Jesus is speaking this out of the deep well of his love and affection for his closest friends. And they've just seen an image of this. Just a few moments before, as their rabbi and their teacher took the lowly position of a slave and washed their feet and loved and served them, but they have no concept of how deep the well of Jesus' love goes for them. They've seen it and been so astounded they didn't know how to process even that expression of love. Peter stumbling over his, are, 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 are you washing my feet? They had no concept for even the love Jesus has already shown them, but they have no clue how far that love is about to go. In a few hours, their friend, their rabbi, their teacher is about to willingly give himself up to be publicly tortured to death on their behalf, to the glory of God. And it's here. It's happening. There's no delay. There's no, it's, it's tonight. And he says, Love each other as I have loved you. Man. See, when Jesus gave this command, they had no clue what he was telling them. It's interesting that Jesus calls it a new command, right? Because if you think about it, the command to love each other is not new to Jesus in John 13. 
In fact, when Jesus was questioned, what is the greatest commandment of the scripture, he gave two love commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love each other as you love yourself. The, the idea of loving and serving others is not a new commandment. It is the core commandment of the scripture. Love God and love others. But what Jesus does, and this word new here is actually the word for fresh, like fresh produce. Like he's giving a freshness to this. They already know you're supposed to to love each other. But let me tell you something. The standard for your love for each other will no longer be the level of love you have for yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. No longer will the standard be the amount of self-love you have. The standard will be the love that I pour out for you. This will be the love by which you measure your love for each other. And that well, brothers and sisters, is deep. That love is astounding. I'm a pretty self-absorbed dude. I don't know if you know that about me. I can't come close (laughs) to loving myself even with the amount of love that Christ has poured out on my behalf. Come on. So this is the fresh commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus says this unifying, connecting, deep, other-centered, sacrificial, painful, skin-in-the-game love that you pour out for each other will be the defining characteristic of my church. Come on. This is how people will know you are my followers. Guys, I hope you see in this, I feel like this perfectly from Jesus' mouth summarizes what I was trying to say with our vision as a church. It's about him. Jesus, his love is the standard by which our relationship to the world is defined. And that love becomes something that bonds his church together as family. And that that family sacrificial other love is what declares his sufficiency and excellency to the world around us that others might be brought from death to life. Jesus' family mission. It all comes back to the love of our sweet, sweet Jesus and how we are invited into participation with that. We are invited to sacrifice and love and give of ourselves to serve others in such a way that his excellency and his sufficiency is boldly proclaimed. And by the way, his church lived this out. He knew how hard it would be for them. When, when, all, when all this went down, he knew what this would do to their hearts. His new command was the solution. No matter what happens, church, remember the culture of Jesus' church is unified, covenantal, other-centered, sacrificial love. Love is the culture of the church, period. Read Acts. Read church history. Look what these people did. 
Look at the way they gave of themselves, gave of their finances, gave of their time, gave of their bodies to love and serve others. Look at the way they gladly sacrificed themselves to the point of death to love and serve others. To love each other as Christ had loved them. To love the world as Christ had loved them. This is why Paul with a complete and total clear conscience can say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is why, this is why the church faced the persecution, not with fear or trembling or cowering or running away, but with songs of worship as they were killed. Because love is the culture of the church. And this love is not a new law from Jesus for a new time. No, this love is the culture of a new life. Jesus' act on the cross fundamentally changed the way we are invited to engage the world around us. And beloved, this has not changed. This invitation is here and now. You and I are invited into this kind of Jesus' love here, now, today. This is the invitation of our faith. And here's my deal. I'm going too long. I believe wholeheartedly that this Jesus love invitation is for all of his church for all of time. For you and for me. Right here, right now, in 2020, in West County, in this church, in this wealth, in this time. All those things believe that. And I honestly, with what I know of you guys as elders, I know that the leadership of this church is doing the best it can to invite and structure this church around that Jesus and his love. But here's the deal. Each and every one of us, I am confident, has a next step of faith in this love of Christ. There's something, something that Jesus is inviting us into real and practical here and now to more fully participate in this invitation. You might be in this room and you might know in your heart of hearts that you are lost and you have not received the salvific gift of Jesus and you have not submitted yourself to him as Lord and Savior and lover of your soul. And I'll, that's your next step. <laughs> but man, you may have loved Jesus for the last 30 years. And I'm telling you, there is an invitation for you to walk forward in faith and in deepening experience of this kind of love. Maybe you understand Jesus as your Savior, but the concept of Him as your Lord, of your life wrapped around Him, of Him as the grounding core of your being is actually really hard because you have really strong opinions about what you'd like to do with your life. That's an invitation to walk forward in faith, to let go of your control over your own life, to walk forward in humble, submissive obedience. Maybe your invitation is that you need to grow in covenant commitment to his family. Because here's the deal. I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but Christians are human beings and we're sinful, terrible people. And when you put yourself out on the line to be intimate and connected and safe with other Christians, they bite you and they hurt you, and people do things that are wrong. 
and people and leaders and people that we trust and love say things that hurt us and wound us and make our faith and our life harder. That does not give you freedom to walk away from Christ's family. Those are your brothers and sisters for eternity. Those are the people that God is calling you into covenant commitment and connection with. And so maybe your next step is you need to learn what it means to be entangled and covenanted to people that have hurt you and will hurt you. And maybe, maybe we love that part. Maybe we love the community, the safety, the confession, the freedom that comes from this family, but we allow the amazing gift of that other-centered Jesus love given to us by the church around us to terminate on us. And maybe you need to step forward in faith of what it means to join with Jesus in his mission, to seek and save the lost, to hunt down and fight the effects of the curse where you work, where you live, where you play, to look for the suffering and the hopelessness and the hurt and the loneliness and the death and the illness and the injustice around you and speak the sacrificial love of Jesus over and against it, amen? Or maybe all three. But I'm confident, I'm confident that God is calling us forward in faith to next steps of growth, next steps of repentance, next steps of faith and belief independence. They exist for you and for me, and we should not ignore them. I don't know, this is cheesy, but I'm going to end here. I love New Year's and New Year's goal setting. I think having a cultural time that's set aside for us to have honest self-reflection and think about ways we want to grow. I think that's cool. I know like it's cool to like make fun of New Year's resolutions and be like, no, February's where resolutions go to die. I, I get it. I know it's cheesy. I love it. I, I love that we have a culture that invites us to self-reflect. I would encourage you guys. It's the end. Of, it's the beginning of a new year. And what a great time to sit back and soberly reflect on your connection to this sweet Jesus who has loved you the way he has and to ask him honestly and humbly what he has for you, what your next step of faith and repentance and growth is. Not other people around you, not your spouse, not your friend, but, but you. What does Jesus have for you to grow in, to be new, to be connected to him? What a great question. And I'm going to end with this. The band can come up. I'm going to read this text. Because I want to give you, I want to give you the single practical step of how to engage this. If you're sitting here and you're going, yes and amen, I know I have next steps. I know I have those inklings of God telling me I need to grow in this, I need to repent of this, I need to believe here. What do I do with this? Jesus gives one clear and simple, amazing answer to that question. As this section of scripture continues on, they, they leave where they're eating dinner and they go and they travel to the, to the garden where Jesus has his moment of, of prayer, right? And while they're traveling, Jesus gives his last words of instruction and encouragement to his disciples. And in the midst of that, he calls back to this way he opened their discussion. And I'm going to read this to you. This is from John 15. I'm just going to read this and then I'm going to pray. And, and we're going to have some time for us to pray and reflect. In John 15, Jesus says this, while he's walking with his friends. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. So whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. It'll be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. So abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be with you and your joy may be full. Again, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Beloved, if you want to grow in your experience of this kind of Jesus love, there is one simple answer. Abide in him. Be with him. Give yourself over to be with him. So I'm going to give some space for us to pray, and I'm going to do the thing we do every week. I'm going to encourage you to be with Jesus for a few minutes. Find some space to do that. If you need to get up and get on your knees somewhere, if you can do that where you're sitting, if you need another human being to pray over you, Dan and Kim will be prayer counselors. They'll be on either side of the room. You guys can find them. I just want to give us a couple minutes to pray and engage and be honest with Jesus about what he's telling us and what we, what we know our next steps of faith are. Even the painful next steps that you don't want to do. Let's be honest with Jesus about those. Let him speak to our hearts. And then in just a few minutes, I'll, I'll pray to close out our time and, and they'll sing a song and I'll open us up for communion and that's how we'll end down. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for how you love us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Jesus, we want to love like you. We want to abide in you and in your love. Open our eyes to what the next step of faith is for us. Open our eyes to what increased faith and obedience and participation in your goodness is. Holy Spirit, do this work in our hearts. Give us clarity and conviction. Beloved, take a few minutes to be with Jesus.